Welcome to the Leader Byte Podcast, hosted by Chester Goat. Bite-sized conversations about leadership, learning, and life. Any topic is fair game here, because committed leaders bring it all to the table. Here's your host, Chester Goad. Hey, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of The Leader Bite. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Scott Sills. Now, Scott resides in Orange County, California. He's a seventh-generation Tennessean. He's written and or edited uh, five books, has two medical reference books coming up. He's received his undergrad from Vanderbilt and holds a Ph.D. in molecular biology uh, from London's University of Westminster, his uh, M.D. degree from University of uh, Tennessee. Uh, After gynecological training at NYU, uh, completed a subspecialty fellowship in reproductive endocrinology at Cornell. Uh, at one time, he also served on the New York State Board for Medicine. He's certified by both the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons. He holds elected fellowships with the American College of uh, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, American College of Surgeons, and the Royal College of Physicians Ireland. Uh, Dr. Skills is a registered or licensed uh, for medicine in California, New York, and the United Kingdom. And right now, he's the medical director for the Center for Advanced Genetics based in Carlsbad, California. Now, for everyone listening out there, we can just suffice it to say uh, Scott is an expert or an internationally recognized expert in reproductive medicine. Dr. Scott Seals, we are thankful to have you on the Leader Bike today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. A little disclosure for everybody. Uh, Scott and I know each other. We're from the same region in Tennessee. We have a lot of friends in common. Our paths paths have taken us down some similar roads, and I've just uh, been incredibly impressed with everything he's doing. I think our listeners will be impressed too. I, I really felt like uh, you could lend us some perspective on becoming an expert in your field and maybe some nuggets of wisdom that you've learned along the way. Are you good with that? Well, I'll do my best. I'm uh, always happy to share insights. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, so let's think back a little bit to when you were in high school. I know yes. uh, your background, you have a great sense of humor, but you've always, really, it seems you've always been a scholar or researcher. Looking back at high school, did you did you ever imagine yourself doing what you're doing now, in other words, um, in medicine? Not really. I think in high school, I was a average student. Uh, there were certainly uh, classmates of mine who had much higher grade point averages, um, but uh, I, I certainly was drawn to the sciences, uh, but I also liked uh, history and uh, art and music. Um, but in, in Tennessee, it was a, a great place to grow up, and uh, those interests were nurtured and uh, facilitated with the great professors and the teachers I had there. Uh, but I don't know that I would have been, in retrospect, uh, plucked out of obscurity uh, to <laughs> have, have a career in uh, reproductive uh, endocrinology when I was a junior or senior in high school. That was so technical and so subspecialized. Uh, I'm not even sure I knew those fields existed when I was uh, right. 16, 17, 18 years of age. And this is a very new area of medicine, too. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Sure. That is one of the things that drew me to it. Well, I'm curious. Um, I'm curious. Did you literally set goals and tick off each box as you were moving along your path? Well, that's a really good question uh, because when I was uh, in Rome County, I became aware that there were two places that when people went to these uh, locations, people paid attention, and it was considered to be a, an important uh event in people's lives. And those two places were the courthouse and the hospital. Right. And so I 
decided that I needed to find out what's going on in those places. Uh, because when you talked about those locations, if you had to, any part of your day involved going to those those rooms, those places, it was considered to be a, you know, an emergency or a, a major event. And that made me uh, try to hang out with attorneys and learn how they did what they did. And also try to be able to spend time with uh, physicians and see what they did. Yeah, I think that's really important to surround yourself with with people as you're as you're searching out what you want to do and and really learning from their example and and uh, yes. kind of take it all in. So um, you're very well traveled, I've noticed, and uh, even more so, you've worked and studied in different parts of the world, Scott. You're licensed or registered to practice even internationally. What would you what would you say you've learned? about people in general along the way? It doesn't necessarily have to be medicine, but it can be. Right. What, what have you learned about people? Well, I, I think in, certainly in the world of medicine uh, that we're all very similar. Um, and uh, certainly in this country, we have the blessing of having what I believe, I'll, I'll confess my bias here, I think we have the best training apparatus for uh, medical uh, work in the world. Right. So many people seek out to have their training here. But at the end of the day, patients uh, all over the world really just want one thing, and that's to be uh, treated with compassion and respect and, and with proficiency that they feel like is a state of the art and uh, that the standard of care is being met. Um, and I certainly felt that my upbringing in Tennessee, where we treat people the same and we respect people and we go out of our way to help people, that, that will open so many doors, just trying to be a good person and trying to make sure that uh, we respect the feelings of others. And that, that really, to me, was uh, very comforting to know that no matter what um, you know, the postcode I was traveling in or working in or studying in, as long as those uh, tenets were obeyed, uh, and it seems like everybody was happy and uh, I was very happy to contribute to those uh, endeavors. Absolutely. Yeah. Human dignity is just huge. Right, right. You know, people just want to feel... They need to know that you care and that you care about them as a person, yes. I think. So um, what's a notable difference in the profession from, you know, when you look at things internationally and then domestically? What mm -hmm. is there a noticeable difference in day-to-day -day practice of medicine? Well, I think that certainly in the U.K., uh, the hierarchy of professions, uh, the hierarchy of providers within medicine is much more pronounced here in, in the States. Uh, uh, I think that it's a much more egalitarian uh, context. Mm. Um, the uh, ability to uh, see a, a very senior professor who's very well known in their field here, uh, if, if you make enough telephone calls, write the right letters, right. you pretty much see whoever you want. But it's uh, certainly a lot more circumscribed, I think, in other jurisdictions where uh, you may or may not be able to see who you want to see, and there's a, a more of a, of a stratification of access. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, so, I, so I think here it's, it's a lot easier to, to get, and I think the, the American consumers would expect that. I mean, uh, if they were to be placed into a uh, NHS-style uh, medical construct, I don't think there'd be many patients in this country that would put up with that for very long. Oh, that's so true. And we, we, we just, um, as a people, we really just want people to be accessible to us, I think. So I think that's very important. Um, I want the listeners out there to understand that you, by many or most accounts, are considered to be an expert in your field. And I'm so proud to know you. You were on, just as a little side note, you were on the CBS talk show, The Doctors, recently, weren't you? 
Yes, um, and that was on a women's health issue. Uh, the most recent appearance was on the uh, patients who had some uh, troubles with this contraceptive coil called the Esure device. Uh, and it, the uh, producers contacted me to address some of those concerns. But you're right, they've also had uh, other shows on a wide range of topics, including uh, fertility uh, issues and miscarriage issues. Um, and that really is what I spend most of my time on. Right, right. Surgery. That's what you're really getting known for. Um, particularly, before we get into that, um, I'm interested in first, why gynecology, obstetrics, uh, uh, fertility? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Uh, I, I think that takes me back to my Memphis days at medical school when I had an opportunity to, uh, as a medical student, uh, help out with delivering babies as uh-huh. a medical student. And I felt like that was the most exciting thing uh, that I've <laughs> ever experienced. And uh, then that led me to uh, apply for uh, internship and residency in OBGYN. And as you correctly said, that took me to New York City, uh, and I had some great instructors uh, there. And it was during the residency period that one of the faculty members from Cornell approached me and said, hey, have you ever considered doing a fellowship in IVF and in reproductive endocrinology? And the answer was no. I had never considered that. Mm-hmm. I, wanted to, I wanted to come back to Roan County. Okay. I wanted to come back and hang out my shingle and be like a Marcus Welpy, primary care doctor, <laughs> uh-huh. and, come, and come back to be with my family in East Tennessee. Um, and so the idea of tacking on additional years of training was uh, not exactly popular at the time. And, <laughs> but, I, I, but I got to thinking about it, and he uh, and others persuaded me to apply to a very competitive uh, fellowship uh, at, a, at a very well-known uh, IVF unit, uh, and I was accepted. Uh, they, they took two fellows that year, and I was one of them, and I was very uh, honored to, to be selected uh, for that uh, additional training. But the problem was now I became so subspecialized, I could never really go back to Harvard. Oh, okay. I, I, was, I was sort of dovetailing myself into a, an area of work that was so narrow uh, that uh, you'd have to go to a city of some size. Mm-hmm. to uh, have sufficient patient volume to make your practice viable. So that kind of limited me to being in the, the larger cities. So right. Well, I, I know that there are so many families and women that are so glad that you have done that. Um, I know that you've touched a lot of families, and I get excited um, for, uh, I guess, reference out there. Scott and I are friends on Facebook, too, and so I see some of the things that he that he posts of just how excited he is about helping um, families create their families, and it's just a, an amazing thing. So you have this book out. Uh, I love the cover for it. You have a book out called Fighting at the Fertility Front, a Navigational Guide to Infertility for U.S. Military Veterans and Their Partners. Where did that come from? What was the reason or purpose for writing that particular book? Well, the, the background is that in my practice in Orange County, that happens to be geographically very close to Camp Pendleton. Okay. So I would see a lot of patients that are military that leave the military health structure and come over to the civilian side to see Dr. Sills for a second opinion. Mm. And I found out that there really was no book out there that addressed the specific concerns and questions about military medicine with regard to reproduction and and infertility. Gotcha. And um, so after thinking back on all the notes of all the patients that I had seen, uh, I decided to use what little free time I had available to put a book 
that kind of summarized all of those observations. I, I think that's that I, I think that's fantastic. Um, what what set, for the listeners out there? What sets apart? for you as a physician, military couples struggling with infertility from non-military couples who struggle with the same thing? Well, I guess the biggest issue that separates them is that most in the civilian uh, uh, world are not exposed to some of the toxins and experimental agents Mm. that a a service member may or may not be exposed to. Uh, I mean, the classic example of going back a generation would be Agent Orange. Right. that those individuals who were exposed to something that was thought to be no big deal, uh, it was quite a big deal. And, but that wasn't disclosed until decades later. So now there's some other uh, substances possibly in the pipeline uh, that could have a very uh, harmful effect on uh, reproductive potential. Um, and the book goes into some detail on uh, whether it's changes in barometric pressure if you're a deep sea diver or high altitude if you're a jet pilot or if you're a uh, in a tank and you're uh, exposed to depleted uranium and uh, the list goes on and on of all the things that are rather unusual to the civilian uh, world but really uh, are very common uh, uh, points of uh, vectors of exposure for individuals who are in that line of work so it's a a type of special occupational hazard that the civilian patient would not really have uh, to worry about that's really amazing. I'm going to put links uh, to that book in my show notes also so listeners out there who are interested or know someone can can share that information. Um, sure. Hey, do you have any idea how many couples you've been able to assist through the years with starting a family? Gosh, um, well, I know that when I was in training at a program that was as large as Cornell's wonderful IVF program, they were at that time seeing about 2,000 cases a year. Now, Clearly, I had a lot of help. Right. <laughs> and nobody could ever do that much on their own. Right. Uh, but the way you framed that question was kind of good because nobody could ever do it all. It's only what I can contribute to. Mm-hmm. Even in private practice, I can be nothing without my laboratory team and my nursing team and my support staff. I mean, they all have a, a direct uh, role in helping get those patients with the most stress across the finish line. Uh, and then I, I would follow them until about uh, maybe 10 weeks of their pregnancy and uh, at that point, those patients kind of uh, graduate, and they go back to a regular OB doctor for their prenatal care. So, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, I, and uh, I also love that you pointed out the team that you work with because that's what leaders do. We we know, no matter what our field, that we're surrounded by people who give great attention to detail, even around us on our team. So I love that you pointed that out. Well, it, it, I, I totally embrace that concept, and, and from the kind of work I do, I have to always make sure that the patients know that they are at the center point of that team, mm-hmm. because, because really the patient is my boss, and as long as I keep the boss happy and make sure that people have uh, their low uh, anxiety levels are low, uh, low level throughout the treatment process, uh, I think that can contribute to high success rates in terms of pregnancy outcomes, um, because you don't, this is a complicated enough treatment uh, as it is without having doctors that don't answer questions or that don't give complete answers. And, sure. Because uh, then, then the patients, you find that they will get on the Google search to try to find out why they're taking a certain medicine or wow. why they're not doing a particular protocol. And, and I think that that's, in, in some ways, and it, it underscores that the doctor was not doing their job because mm-hmm. the patient shouldn't have to feel like they are 
going to have to go do their own detective work on this if the doctor was a good communicator. That's a great point. I think that goes also back into leadership. Hey, regarding in, regarding these families, do you ever do you ever hear from any of them? Are there any that want to stay in contact with you? Oh, yes. Uh, of course, if they have a deployment that takes them far away, then it's obviously difficult for them to come back to Southern California. And military families are often uh, characterized by uh, international uh, moves. Uh, that's, that, that's part of their uh, billet. But uh, for my civilian patients, I would I always love to see them come back to the office and, and bring their babies in for a, a visit. Because for me, the last time I would have held that baby was when they were just in a couple of cells large and so to see actually a, a full-grown uh, you know baby who's nine ten months old uh, that's <laughs> a remarkable thing I, I don't see that in every case but it's always gratifying to see the uh, the conclusion of uh, those embryos that grow and, and develop into happy healthy babies that's so awesome uh, i love talking with successful people and picking their brains on on how they get to where they were now you're a leader in your field you continue to show leadership in so many ways um if if you were mentoring someone who was listening out there who looked at your accomplishments and they said wow i'd love to do all those things i wouldn't even know where to start uh maybe not necessarily in your field but i want to be successful like this what would be your message for that person Wow. I guess my message to that person would be to don't give up on your own dreams. Uh, and I would echo the point that you raised earlier, which is to try to surround yourself with people that have accomplished what you want to accomplish, or close to it at least, and and, and take on board the, the advice that to others who are more seasoned and more experienced might offer. Uh, because uh, really, it's a, it's a journey, and uh, having proper uh, guideposts along the way, it's a very critical part of it. Who would you credit um, most of your professional successes from? I mean, obviously, you've done a lot of things yourself, but is there anybody you think of or anything that contributed a lot to that? Oh, yes, absolutely. I would always be indebted to the senior faculty back at Cornell, Jean-Pierre Palermo, uh, uh, Dr. Zeb Rosenwax, uh, Dr. Glenn Chapman. These are the uh, doctors who had the biggest imprint in my formative years as a young doctor in training uh, that helped guide me uh, and I was able to learn a great deal of them in terms of uh, from positive example. Um, so I think that the other great thing that uh, people who are being mentored, is that they can sort of steal the secrets of others and incorporate them into their own practice portfolio, whether they're an educator or an engineer or an attorney or a medical doctor, looking back and, and well, how would my mentor have handled this problem? How, how would they have handled this challenge? And, and those are the sort of uh, guideposts I, I try to... And my own parents, of course. I mean, they, they, sure. they were not medical people, but certainly they had an impact in terms of how I uh, try to make every day count. Uh huh. And then it's it's kind of funny because at some point you also become the person people are coming to you to be mentored. So that's uh, that's very cool. Um, for people who want to be leaders in their field or leaders in general, what would you say is like the most important thing for them to remember? Uh, it gets back to the human dignity element that, that you raised earlier to make sure that uh, while a person is developing their uh, proficiency in a particular area of scholarship, uh, it's not enough to be an expert. You have to be a humanitarian. Mm. You, have to be, uh, you have to be a person that's approachable. Because uh, there's a lot of very smart people who are jerks out there. So you don't want to have, <laughs> no you don't have uh, those kinds of folks uh, impacting impressionable young minds who are 
formative in terms of their career trajectories. So, right. so as, we, as we said earlier, it's really just making sure that uh, you're attentive to the needs of others and uh, the gift that you give to them is your own knowledge. Uh, they, they're not supposed to know as much as the expert. Right. The expert doesn't have to convey that in a way that makes the patient or the student or the client feel inferior. It's it's more in a way that, that um, I'm, I'm almost like a coach. Uh, they're the team, and I have to be the coach. And, I love it. Yeah, I love that. What What would you say is the greatest challenge, uh, if you had to pick one, facing leaders in general today? Um, I guess... Uh, transparency to making sure that the decisions that are being uh, processed are, are done in an inclusive way and to make sure that uh, leadership is truly a reflection of the consensus uh, that uh, you know it's, it's not a dictatorship it's a it's a it's leadership by uh, a structure of consensus but mm. making sure that patients know that they have some voice in that exactly it's, it's really it's very important well so what's what's next for you what do you have coming up well um, the project that I'm most excited about, excuse me, right now is uh, a potentially, I think, path-breaking uh, research in, uh, initiative on something called ovarian rejuvenation, which is uh, a technique where patients who have no uh, eggs of their own may be able to resuscitate their ovaries and to uh, elicit a growth response to harvest eggs. And that is uh, potentially uh, huge for That's phenomenal, yeah. medicine because you know it, nobody uh, wants to see the biological clock tick down to zero for a person who still has that dream of having a baby of her own. Yeah. So we're working with some colleagues in uh, Greece uh, who have published some preliminary work from an IVF unit in Athens. Um, in the next several months, I'll be uh, able to offer that treatment here at the California unit uh, and. Um, that will probably keep me busy because I think that's going to generate a lot of data uh, and a lot of manuscripts, lots of papers will this get off from that. But the best thing is it may actually help patients have some healthy babies. Ultimately changing lives. That's awesome. So if people wanted to keep up with you, if they wanted to learn more about you, what's a way that people could connect with you? Well, the webpage for the practice, uh, our, as you mentioned, CAG is in Carlsbad, California. They could always uh, type in my name or the the clinic's uh, uh, cagivf.com is our web, web, web address. Um, I think there's a uh, the, the two books I'm working on now will be added to Amazon pretty quickly, and there'll always be a way to uh, track backwards uh, the, the, through the publisher and through me uh, what, what's going on here in California. Um, and they can always call you, and you'll get a hold of me. So, <laughs> That's right. And we'll, we'll, uh, I'm. I'm, I'm uh, I'm not going underground anytime, so okay. good. <laughs> That's good. Hey, um, this has been awesome. I want to thank you for spending yeah. time with me. I want to wish you the very best and wishing you a blessed and productive year with all you're doing. We appreciate you. This was a well, uh, this was definitely a leadership conversation worth having in, and I hope that you'll come back and spend some time yeah. with us again sometime. I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Okay, everybody, that is Scott Sills, author, medical expert in fertility, most certainly a leader in his field. I'll be sure to have some links for some of the things he's talked about today. Thanks for listening to the show. As always, I'd like to invite you to join me on your favorite social media. And until next time, keep leading, keep learning, keep living, and give it all your best all the time. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening to the Leader Byte podcast, bite-sized conversations about leadership, learning, and life. Keep the conversation going at ChesterGo.com.
or on your favorite social media because leadership is a conversation worth having.